You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Today, we've got an interview with Jim Pantaleo. He's an indoor farm guy, previously a longtime veteran of software business development with Hewlett Packard. So he's been around and seen some things and has a very practical viewpoint that I really enjoy. He and I go way back, about three or four years, which is forever in indoor farm years. In that time, he's done a number of projects in the industry. He's worked with Urban Ag News, spent some time with Urban Produce as a general manager, and is now bringing that hands-on experience into his new startup, Field of Greens. Jim and I get to talking quite a bit about what it's going to take to move the indoor farm industry forward. Like any emerging tech field, there are a lot of learning processes. We're used to thinking about how we need to learn how to make and use the technology, but there are other learning curves as well. How to identify, retain, and deploy the right people alongside that technology. How to interact with the rest of the supply chain, and how to engage all that stuff so it actually pays for itself. So in the interest of keeping the industry moving along on that learning curve, and as people who have been in the industry for a while, we're going to talk about some things that we kind of wish investors knew. And by extension, of course, entrepreneurs and other industry players as well. It's just that investors tend to pull a lot of the strings. So we're going to jump right into it, starting with how Jim got involved in this industry. for a good 20 years and again about three and a half years ago uh, decided to get into indoor vertical farming in particular and uh, definitely have been kicking around spent an entire year where I met you actually early on um, just investigating and researching the industry uh, nascent as it still is and then cut my teeth with urban produce here in, in Southern California with respect to actually being a part of an indoor vertical farm, working in all areas of uh, operations, uh, sales, etc. So it's a great experience. The question that you have about what an investor would look for with respect to, um, again, a, a pre-existing business that might be a few years old uh, in this space, and I'll speak uh, primarily to the indoor vertical farm uh, that may be, again, growing uh, leafy greens in this case. Um, what's important, like any business, is to look at um, uh, where that particular business is today uh, with their uh, operating expenses. The critical component with respect to operating expenses, like any business, is to throw a rope around and be ready for, if you will, uh, where those at. So if I am an investor, I want to see uh, key areas of the farm or the grow operation uh, in the following areas. Um, critically, do, do the current owners and managers of the business or the operation have farming, agriculture, and or produce experience? all of which are, are really important. And when I say produce, 
You can even lump in grocery um, business with that. All bring to the table really important uh, skills in, in terms of supply chain management. Uh, uh, again, uh, who your customers are, uh, wh- wh- where their needs lie in terms of if it's a if you're in retail and it's a, a grocery a chain or store. Uh, or again, if it's in uh, another area of farming or production, you know, the shipping uh, components of that, refrigerated shipping, et cetera, et cetera. So does your management team have that um, knowledge base? Really super important, number one. Right. Well, and number, that's, I'll let you finish, but uh, <laughs> go right ahead. that's definitely something I've seen is you have a lot of operations that are really obsessed with the grow out part and have just really forgotten to think about what happens after they harvest and cooling, packaging, distribution. Those are actually where your money is. And that's where most of your work is. Um, so as tech companies are obsessed with the grow out, but as a business, you need to worry about your post harvest. So like, even then, like just retail experience is really fantastic. So yes, proceed. Absolutely. So again, anybody would say, do these guys have a management team that are experienced or even an ownership uh, um, team that are experienced in the industry they're in? Secondly, in terms of the actual uh, physical building, the gross space, the actual business itself, the operation, it's critical that your real estate is not so exorbitant that you are buried by its monthly cost. Be in an area that is not so much um, high rent district as it is getting the job done. Being in a corridor, if you will, uh, of a freeway system that will lead to your uh, distribution centers and or manufacturing centers where your raw product will end up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and don't try to have a showroom straight away um quite frankly the pink lights are enough of a seduction (laughs) where you don't need to be in the high rent district Uh, that's really critical just make sure your real estate costs are in line to your operation uh, and your customer base yeah and the nice thing is every city has got at least one warehouse district somewhere that's already designed for that it's already got low rent it's already got great transportation infrastructure every city's already got at least one of those so, Absolutely. yeah, let's pay attention to that. Absolutely. Which brings up another question, Sarah, in that are you leasing or are you buying it? And I lean towards if I was a investor that the folks own the building mm-hmm. and they own and or own the land uh, as well, where you can make significant inroads with respect to um, – Zoning aside, municipal zoning regulations aside, where you, in fact, can make significant inroads with energy consumption, talking about photovoltaics on a roof yeah. or, or, or other uh, areas. Um, so I recommend that uh, ownership over leasing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We actually touched on it uh, in a previous interview with a structural engineer. We were talking about, you know, sometimes you need to make a modification to a building. Um, when I'm working with clients, sometimes there's a physical thing in the building that just doesn't really work. Um, and I said, well, we need to fix this in order to make your system work and to make it, you know, labor efficient. And they can't do that because they're leasing and they don't have the power to change that about the structure. So that is definitely something that can, can come up for your business. Indeed. 
And I, uh, I've been a part of organizations where we asked for the ability to put photovoltaics on the roof, and we were um, given permission to do so under the um, caveat that when we left after our lease was up, that the photovoltaics stayed. Um, so uh, it would not have been a win-win for us, so didn't do it. Right. I wanted to um, talk about um, labor and consumables as being a part of what an investor would look for in, in yeah. terms of operating expenses that are either red flags or really need to be there. So management team is one, two is real estate or how they're paying for it. Three is going to be um, energy, labor, and then I guess three could be all one thing. Energy costs, labor costs, and yeah. then consumable costs like seeds, boxes, other things like that. Yeah. So do you want to preface that with a, a sentence or should I just keep going? I don't know. Um, I'm really actually interested in this labor situation. Um, something that I've seen a lot of tech companies, period, not just indoor ag do, is they make a lot of noise about how they're going to automate. Tesla is actually a really fantastic example of this. They make a lot of noise about how they're going to automate, um, but then they don't. Um, the rollout of their most recent sedan, you know, Tesla was going to automate their entire line, then they didn't. Um, obviously there's been some automation, but there's not as much as they were planning to do, but they were planning on their ultimate plan was to get rid of people. Right. So they didn't really plan well for people to work in there either. So they're not automated and they're also really not geared up to actually have humans work there. And they had a lot of worker injuries as a result. Um, obviously they also had production problems, which was just another symptom of just kind of like poorly executed, just implementation of their, of their build program. But it was so poorly done that it hurt people. Right. Um, one of the fundamental things you're supposed to do in manufacturing is you rotate people between jobs every couple of hours so that they're not doing the same one task for eight to 10 hours at a time. And you start popping tendons. Uh, Tesla failed to do that. And it was kind of funny because it was right there in their policy. We're going to rotate people every two hours, but in real life, they weren't doing it. And somebody kind of confronted them about it and said, why not? And they said, well, we're still writing the software that's going to enable us to rotate people. Well, you know, Ford and GM and Toyota have been rotating people analog for 20 or 30 years, but Tesla has to write software for it. Okay, then. So that's that's something that you'll also kind of encounter, I think, in indoor ag a little bit is there's this this end goal that we're going to automate. And they're so focused on we're going to automate in the future that they don't really pay a whole lot of attention to how they're doing it now. And there are some consequences to that. Um, high labor costs because you didn't really plan out how you're going to do it. Um Definitely some worker injury potential if you don't think about how you're doing it. Always that's an issue. Um, yeah, just just a lot of like sloppy kind of operational issues can result if you don't really think out your process. So that's something that I would be looking for as an investor is, okay, I know they tell me they're going to automate, but in the meantime, have they thought about how they're going to do it? Because you can't automate it right if you don't know how humans would do it or you don't know what you're supposed exactly. to do. So I think exactly. that, yeah, that so unfamiliarity is, is a problem. Yes, it's from my experience is that it, if you automate, it doesn't mean that you're removing um, labor, so to speak. Right. It actually means that that labor turns into kind of the caretaker, if you will, of that particular piece of automation. Yeah, and it doesn't I'll work like you, people think it does. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a great example. So at a facility, Sarah, that I have um, – uh, encountered that, yeah uh, the question of automation versus labor was always critical 
because this particular facility did not have a lot of automation. And case in point, they used the substrate, which was a cocoa uh, peat mixture, right. uh, uh, mixed, if you will, uh, on a daily basis by a gentleman we'll call Pedro. Okay. And the assumption was is that when we would purchase a or when a uh, uh, when the company would purchase a batch mixer, a nice three-yard electric batch mixer yeah. where you could take your bales of substrate and then get beyond Pedro mixing it in a wheelbarrow by hand. I've had that Pedro, job. It takes forever. Well, there you go. So and it's true. Pedro is a great mixer of the substrate, but he spends all day doing it. Mm-hmm. We could get far more productivity done with a batch mixer, or they could, excuse me, and Pedro would not have to leave or be terminated. He would simply then be the caretaker of the batch mixing machine. Right. And uh, you, would, you would maintain him, use him in other areas of production as well. Mm-hmm. But just because you've automated one piece of equipment or one area of production does not mean that you have to remove that human being from the equation. Right. Ideally, you kind of free up people's time from kind of repetitive tasks into being able to pay attention to the system and seeing where we have deficiencies and fix them. That's what people should be doing. And machines should be doing repetitive tasks. Yes. And you also increase, if you take another part of the production process, say, which of course, in my experience, I've seen some cutting machines that absolutely would take a hand or a finger off um super scary super scary but even when you look to the modern um examples look no further than some of the machines that are coming out of the netherlands for example um uh, when you look at those machines you can feel good sarah about taking a person and increasing their skill and knowledge base in now having to use what was once an antiquated, dangerous machine to something that's really cool and that may be very, uh, just bluntly, very high tech. And it would turn them into a real um, thought uh, worker versus or knowledge worker versus just a labor crew worker, if you will. Right. And that's that's exciting, too, when you think about increasing um the skill set of of any labor force. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of something that gets really to the heart of lean manufacturing. Is um, I feel like in in the tech industry we talk about lean quite a bit, um, but there's something that people seem to keep forgetting when they talk about it. when 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 Americans talk about it. It's very much based on techniques and you know tools and physical things that you do. When you listen to people at Toyota talk about it, which is the company that really came up with this system, they talk about people. It's the weirdest thing. Um, and it's very, it's really very people focused. It's we want to make sure that our employees are empowered, number one, to notice things and to be able to fix them on their own because they're the ones working with it every day. Um, yes, they do automate quite a bit. Obviously, they're a, an auto manufacturer, so there's a lot of automation. Um, but at the end of the day, it's you know, those tools have to be run by people. If there are problems, they have to be detected by people, diagnosed by people, treated by people, uh, prevented from happening in the future by people. And so Toyota really sees itself as this kind of people-oriented company. 
Um, and so they've come up with this system that kind of encapsulates that. But whenever I hear Americans talking about it, they miss the people side of it, which is a little disheartening. Um, yes, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so true. so true. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also good to just like hear somebody who's seeing that same thing in business as well, because I see that over and over again. And it, it, again, it can be a little disheartening because it seems to get missed so much, but that's, that's very much at the core of things is your employees aren't a cost. They should be a profit center. Um, you should be treating them like a profit center. You should be empowering them and training them to be able to do things for you. Um, if you're not doing that, your business has a problem. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and also, I think it also leads back to that first um, uh, kind of red flag, if you will, for investors that if they see an indoor operation where the management team is not um, well versed in the industry itself, mm -hmm. Uh, as well as the people side, yeah. even down to, as you and I have talked about in the past, whether or not they can speak Spanish. Yep. Uh, you know, whether or not the crew is um, heard. Uh, and again, getting down to, uh, we're talking about automation and equipment. If there's a problem with a piece of equipment and that's lost in translation, if you will, to the management team, that can be... Um, costly yeah and uh, there's no no way around it but uh being connected to people down to a language uh is even uh a critical critical part of all of this so right yeah and you bring up a really good point there that i want to touch on is the spanish language and the the demographic situation so here's the deal and jim and i have kind of talked about this before um when you think about agriculture and like the U.S. Latino population in agriculture, people typically think of, you know, just crew laborers, like just, just manual labor. Um, and that's definitely a thing, but that's also been a thing for 30, 40 years and, and more. It's been a thing for so long that if you wanted to be a knowledge worker in agriculture, if you wanted to be a supervisor, if you wanted to, um, you know, work with integrated pest management and make sure that the field is doing well and doesn't have pest problems. If you want to do, um, wholesaling. If you do anything in agriculture, you better speak Spanish um, because that's who has the skills to run the thing. And, and what has been happening for the last couple of decades, actually, is the middle management at farms and basically the, the knowledge base of people who actually know how to run agriculture and know how to run um, kind of that supply chain between the farm and retail is heavily Spanish speaking. Um, obviously everybody in that area is, is bilingual because that's why you're in charge. You can speak both to the farm crew and to like, you know, everybody else in the supply chain. So it's not like it's, it's an only Spanish speaking environment. Um, but as we know, Silicon Valley in the tech industry have been having some issues with demographics and not being able to hire really substantially outside certain demographics, which do not intersect with the demographic that knows how to farm and the demographic that knows how to run a supply chain in food. And so I'm seeing a lot of things where the tech industry kind of um, rolled out of bed one morning and said, I'm really fascinated by food. Let's do it. Let's go do some food stuff. Um, but there's a huge institutional knowledge base that they're not tapping into. Um, I've seen companies here and there do it. And it's, you know, as somebody who works personally with farms, when I go there and I see them making the right hires, they're hiring folks who actually know agriculture. Um, they're not restricting themselves to a, an informal gringo only hiring policy. Um, when I see companies that are actually going out and getting it, um, again, that's, that's, that's really, really positive. Um, they're actually reaching into, 
that institutional knowledge base where the knowledge about food is and how to run a food system in this country. Um, that's something that I'm kind of seeing like Silicon Valley is going to have some struggles as it moves into new industries, which it's doing right now. And that is definitely going to be one of them is their hiring biases. No, it is true in that uh, down to its most basic, um, uh, the base, most basic view, I guess you could look at like, say an example of the, the film Norma Ray with Sally Field. You remember that film where, um, you know, she ends up getting up on top of some table in the middle of a sweatshop and all the sewing machines stopped or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, there is a fundamental chasm mm-hmm. and sadly there never should be, but where you find failure. And again, mm-hmm. if we're looking at this from an investor's perspective, if there is a fundamental chasm between management and labor, mm-hmm. then you got a problem and run, just mm-hmm. run to the door. Mm-hmm. If the management team can't communicate with labor in their language, mm-hmm. if they don't understand the business from a traditional sense, as we've discussed, if you have a situation where you sense that there may be revolt, <laughs> if there's a norm array <laughs> among them, then you run to the next exit and you don't invest in that company. Right. But it's critical to understand that basic component between the synergies and positive vibrations of a management team and the labor that is the backbone of the business. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that happen, not even when there was a language or cultural barrier, but just like a white collar versus blue collar barrier. Um, yes. I've definitely seen that where management said, I, I, I want this kind of thing to happen. I want this kind of thing to be built. And then um, I just, I don't really know what the disconnect was exactly, so I can't speak to that. But what management had in mind and what actually got built were two very different things. And being indoor agriculture, there's a lot of wiring, there's a lot of electric, and there's a lot of plumbing that have to cross by each other quite quite closely. And so if you don't really have a coherent vision for how they're going to interact, they're going to interact in ways that are kind of uncontrolled and unexpected. And maybe people can get electrocuted is... is Speaking of, you know, worker safety issues that come as a result of things not being well planned out and not executed well, um, there was some kind of communication problem between what the top brass wanted and what actually happened. Um, Because, I mean, plumbers and electricians, I mean, they can work together, but if you're not giving either one of them clear instructions, then something good is not going to happen. So, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, want to kind of, I don't want to get too far off of the, the key what would an investor look for or be want to be aware of? And, and I know we've talked about these operating expenses of real estate, of people. Um, and I wanted to also touch a little bit about kind of energy consumption, because in any indoor vertical farm, you know that your lights will consume a good part of your energy costs or be a good part of your energy costs. I think it's really important that if, if if one is investing, that there is a handle on what those energy costs are and that there are um, at least some kind of efforts to decrease those costs. Again, whether it's based on your own energy saving methods, if you own the building, photovoltaics, as we've talked about, or, 
whether it's getting to the next generation of LED lights, which uh, as as all those manufacturers would tout, they're they're you know higher energy saving than the previous version, et cetera, et cetera. So those are really important. The final piece that I wanted to talk about with respect to operating expenses are, again, your basic um, uh, parts of the business that it's the investor wants to ensure that the operator has a handle on. And that is your your basic consumables, everything from seed to um, boxes to what the crew will wear um, on their heads and on their hands yeah. or over their bodies, if you will, in the production process. So very, very important to know that where where their seeds are being purchased is purchased at an uh, excellent price. It's a great quality. Uh, they can get it easily. Uh, that, again, the boxes, which in terms of how it's consumed, could be in the thousands on a weekly basis, and right. also the tonnage, by the way, on your seed could be in the thousands of pounds on a weekly basis. Yeah. And again, those other consumables, gloves and hair bonnets, if you will, can be in the hundreds, uh, depending on your crew size on a weekly basis. So all those operational expenses and your management of them and your ecosystem of suppliers, you really need to know uh, where they are, and I'm, I'm, I, I want that to be a really clear kind of statement to any potential investors in this space. Yeah, well, that's a, that's something I definitely deal with. Like, you know, I've spent a lot of time working actually as a food safety auditor, and people hear food safety and they're like, oh, but what it is is it's really just kind of tracking. Okay, how does stuff move through this facility? How does our operation put together? It's really just about the people flows and the stuff flows and just kind of looking at the operation in a coherent way. Um, so that is great. that's a great point, sir. And actually yeah. it's a point that I kind of wanted to make as kind of a wrapping up a little bow around all of this discussion. Yeah. If I was an investor, I would want to make sure <laughs> that this operator had a HACCP certified food safety person or director, if you will, yeah. uh, program manager, whatever the title is, on staff at all times based on whatever audit scheme you were growing under, whether it's USDA's organic audit certification yeah. or, for example, any kind of solid um, audit scheme like a, a Primus GFSI yes. audit, which is highly uh, sought after and uh, viewed positive, positively by many of the global cold pressed juice companies, as you well know. Yeah. If you've got a Primus GFSI audit and you're anywhere over, you know, 95% in your score, you are sought after and looked at as a positive supplier of raw material. So if I was an investor, again, I'd want to ensure that there was somebody on staff that was food safety versed, that food safety was a, a top priority, that they had a HACCP certification, that there was ongoing food safety training for the crew, even for management and uh, uh, you know ownership, that they were had basic fundamental food safety understanding, and that it was a uh, it was a leading uh, 
part of part of their business motions. Just like people are important, food safety is important. Right. That should lead all of these guys forward. And if I again, if I was an investor, I'd want to make damn sure that a food safety protocol program was in place, and that this company, this operator, adhered to it to the to the to the letter. Right. Yeah. And thanks for beating that drum for me, Jim, because now I don't have to. Um, (laughs) but so one of the, the fun things about food safety is it's really just fundamentally about does this facility have its act together? Um, you never get into a place and you're like, wow, they really ran a tight ship there except for the rats, you know, like that doesn't happen. Right. Uh, (laughs) so one of the things, so I picked up some sneaky auditor tricks. So if I can just throw out a couple of them for you, um, one of the things you want to look at in terms of an audit is where do they have things stored? Cause that kind of tells you where your traffic patterns are. Um, you know, if they have their pesticides stored in a fridge or they're also keeping food, definitely you have a problem. Thank heavens. I've never actually seen that, but that's definitely something you don't want to see. Um, so one of the things you want to do if you're an investor and you get a chance to actually go to the, one of these facilities is just kind of go like, Oh, wow. Like, Ooh, can we see your seeds? You know, they may not show them to you. Um, but just kind of keep an eye out for like, say where they're storing their seed. Is it anywhere close to where they're planting? If not, why, you know, like, have they thought about where they store stuff at all in a way that makes a coherent flow? Because if you're going into a place as an investor and they have things stored all over the place such that there's really no smooth work pattern, um, you know, number one, that tells you they do not have their act together. Um, that tells you that they are disrespectful disrespectful of their employees and their employees' time and management is not taking the time out to think, hey, either I need to make things easier for my employees or I need to empower them to make things easy for themselves and just kind of set up a logical workspace. Um, it tells you that management is really disconnected from operations. And that's something that as an investor, you want to know if they're paying attention to that or not. So just little things like that, like paying attention to where an operation has stuff stored can tell you a lot as an inspector or as an investor. So absolutely. Absolutely. And if I can say from my experience and most recent experience with the Primus audit, uh, just last month, actually, um, is it is the CCPs, the critical control points. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's absolutely what you're talking about, what an auditor will look for and what an investor should be aware of, especially when you look at things like, uh, is there a chemical locker from yeah. a storage perspective? Can it be, is it behind lock and key? Is there a, a demarcation between where seed is stored and where there may be um uh, a, a pet uh, entry, a pest entry, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, and again, are there pest issues? Yeah. Mice critical, love seeds. Critical questions <laughs> based on critical control points. So, yeah. yes. Yeah, and just your basic GMPs, your good management practices as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So again, like you never see a place that is just really running a tight crack in operation. Everything's shipped on time and everything's in good condition, but also there's a lot of rats. You never see that. Um, <laughs> right. And w- yeah. if you were to uh, ask the operator, hey, do you have a good uh, a documentation library system or do you have all of your standard operating procedures and your uh, good management practices, good right. agricultural practices, GMP, GAP, etc., SOPs, do you have that readily available where we could see uh, if you're you know up to speed on or up to date with all of your uh, again uh, standard operating procedures and all your food safety protocols if you will yeah 
Well, and all that documentation is really kind of viewed as do nothing busy work, um, which I mean, certainly you can, you can make way more logs than you actually need and you could fill them out, but that's on you for poor design, not record keeping itself. Right. Um, right. It's viewed as do nothing work, but again, you're coming back to lean management, right? So a lot of lean is, okay, let's see how we're doing. We need to know how we're performing. We need to find out where our pitfalls are. How are you supposed to find out if you don't have records? Um, you know, no one person can be in all parts of the facility at the same time. And there may be issues that are related to each other. There may be, may be things that are too granular or too dispersed for any one person to see. And they're going to show up if you're keeping good records. Um, yes. I was at a place once doing an inspection where you know, a lot of your places, if they're washing produce, they might manage or they, they might measure the concentration of their wash solution. You know, there's antimicrobials in there so they don't spread stuff around. Um, you know, like sodium hypochlorite or something like that. Most places, you know, they'll check it like once an hour, maybe twice an hour, two or three times an hour. Uh, this place put in an inline probe. So it was measuring like, you know, probably like once a second, um, you know, just taking electronic readings. And they found out that once a day, there was some kind of thing happening with the plumbing where they were losing a lot of their concentration. And they never would have known that if they were just doing hourly and going back and looking through their records because records are pointless if you don't read them, right? Um, <laughs> so yes. there's, I mean, and that, that's something that was kind of like a big deal in the entire system, not just with food safety. You want to know how your machines are working and they would never would have known without records. Um, I, I just run into a lot of circumstances when I'm working with a farmer with a packing house where there's something where the records actually help them diagnose a problem and fix it operationally. So it's again, kind of disheartening when you work with folks, um, who are new to the food industry and don't realize why that's important. Um, you know, just kind of making the mistakes that they need to make to realize that that's a real thing that they should do. So that's, that's a fun thing of, of working with people who are new entrants to the industry. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, um, a spine chilling statement, um, to know that if someone, a human being was harmed in any way, shape or form by your product, um, Believe me, you would adhere to any and all food safety protocols that came your way. You would be a proponent. It, it only takes one tragedy to bring this all very clearly and real to, to anybody. Right. Um, and there's recent stories, as you well know, I mean, Ch- Chipotle, et cetera. So yeah. um, the whole the lettuce, um, recent romaine uh, lettuce outbreak. And believe me, and if I might, Sarah, I'd like to say that, again, if we keep our, hey, Mr. Investor, what are you looking for hat on? Yeah. Uh, let's also say that if a operation has a, a, a reputable, credible food safety consultant uh, on staff or at their um, available to them, that's a plus. Yeah. In my experience, where we have had a reputable food safety consultant, um, of which I know you do this work as well, oh. along with auditing work. It's really important because these folks have been through many, many audits, uh, and they understand, um, the nature of, 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 you know, obviously microbial and pathogen, uh, issues, et cetera. So very important. Right. Yeah. And it's really important to me when I'm working with someone as a consultant, um, there's kind of two genres of consultants. There's the one that you just kind of throw work to and they stay with you forever, kind of as a, almost like a 1099 employee and they're just with you forever and you throw stuff yes. at them so you don't have to deal with it. 
Um, I don't like doing that. <laughs> um, it's, it's really better to look for a place that's kind of using their consultant as a coach, because that tells you they're there to learn and they're there to, um, get their stuff together and handle it properly. Right. Um, as a consultant, I really prefer to work with people again, as a coach. Um, I don't want to have someone that I'm in a relationship with for years and years and years, but I don't really know what they're doing because I'm not there. Um, that to me, that just doesn't really seem like a healthy relationship. So I really avoid that as a consultant and would also just really recommend, um, you know, to folks in the business to kind of follow that. It, it's really tempting to just collect paychecks forever, but it's, it's really, it's not healthy. I prefer to release my cubs into the wild, you know, once they're trained. So, um, I don't know, that's a business practice I like to see. Yeah. And from my experience, um, the food safety consultants that I've dealt with, have been um, fantastic coaches, uh, trainers, teachers, guides. They wear those hats very well. And in fact, actually, um, some of them actually do lecture uh, yeah. at local universities mm-hmm. and um, also do work for not only very large um, uh, food manufacturing concerns, but also governments, uh, yeah. some of the food safety um Consultants that I know do work on behalf of China and uh, uh, the Latin American uh, governments as well uh, in terms of their food safety protocols uh, uh, from a governmental perspective. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far off into the weeds with this, but it does really seem like every person who works in food safety doesn't really have a job. They just have 14 different side hustles that they do at all times. So yes. It can be useful because then you get a great network when you get a person Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. And you have a wide swath of knowledge, too, in terms of uh, um, customer base. Obviously, some uh, operators, if you will, at this point, aren't per se necessarily selling to the government or the military, as an example. Yeah. But believe me, just like in, in say, the dairy industry, who have massive amounts of uh, cheese, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, that go to public uh, assistance programs, et cetera. And quite frankly, if you, if you go to, do you buy, do you have Del Tacos in North Carolina? Uh, I don't know, but I've definitely been around. Those heard before, okay. So, so in yeah. the West we have a very large, well-known fast food chain, Mexican food fast food called Del Taco. Yeah. And it takes you a nanosecond to understand that cheese is actually a really, really cheap ingredient for them. <laughs> they use it copiously. Right. And if you dig deeper into the, the cost of global cheese, if you will, it, it doesn't have to tell you too much. And again, put in governments and militaries, et cetera, et cetera, and you, you find that you have these um, procurement relationships, yeah. uh, supply relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So if we're talking about indoor farming, and we're talking about who are your customers, um, who you're growing for. Uh, all of this is, is certainly uh, on the forefront. Not necessarily here now, as we know. Yeah. But will will be for sure. Yeah, there's some very very large supply chains at play here, and in order to get access to them, you have to really demonstrate to buyers that you have your stuff together. Um, yes. And, and, and food safety actually is a big way that they do that. Because, again, food safety is really about do you have your stuff together. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah. And if we could just just dovetail away from, from food safety back to 
really the the nuts and bolts of this. And again, if I'm an investor, does this company are they making any money right now? Do they have any any decent customers? Do they have will they have decent customers in the future? Everything that you and I have discussed today touches upon that, and that's obviously where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Can these guys grow? Can these people grow? Can this operation grow in, in, in large scale, tonnage, high quality, low cost, etc.? And can they make money off of it? And can they can they prove themselves to be scalable and profitable? Right. And it's really the bottom line. Right. And, and doing something at scale, at low cost and high quality, it sounds like an impossible request. But, you know, Toyota has been doing it for quite some time and they, keep, sure. and they keep trying to tell the rest of us how, but we won't listen. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's not impossible, Sarah. Yeah, it's not impossible. There are there are those that are doing it right now. Um, they're not screaming from the mountaintops, nor getting all the ink uh, yeah. or media, if you will, that some of uh, these larger guys are. But um it is being done, and quite frankly, I've been a part of these organizations that, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, if but for one part of the operational expense component, yeah, uh, would would and are robust, good, solid businesses. Hmm. Fascinating. I want to follow yeah. up with you on that one off the air, but uh, <laughs> won't yes. worry about that right yes. now. Sans those operational. Important operational components that we've talked about. Yeah, we're talking things like rent and consumables and correct. Yeah, okay. correct. Interesting. Yes. Very cool. Well, hey, yes. it's been good. I won't take up your entire day. So, what's next for Jim Pantaleo? Um, you mentioned his designer, blah, 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 the greens thing. Yeah, Field of Greens is definitely there. We're we're absolutely uh, um, the last. Uh, throws of our funding exercise with yeah. some very solid and strong uh, investors. That's great. Um, yeah. I'm also uh, doing some interesting side consulting uh, work with uh, some folks in India. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is all newly developed. It's very, very uh, embryonic right now, but it's, uh, it's, it's fun. I'm uh, sort of taking a little bit of a break from some long-term projects that I've been on. Yeah. And uh, maybe a little vacation would be nice. Yeah. But that's that's always sure good. That's going to happen. Oh gosh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm uh, also actually involved in some some work with the University of California. They're doing some work with respect to. Uh, the building of an innovation center, an ag tech hmm. innovation center That's based right. at one of the regional education centers of which there are, I think there are about eight or nine of them in California owned yeah. by, these are large plots of land, Sarah, that are yeah. owned by the UC system. There may be greenhouses or actual farmland or also even some minor research building centers yeah. and stuff, but they want to build a big new modern in, um, indoor Ag Innovation Center run by the UC system. Oh, really? So I'm involved, yeah, I'm involved in an advisory group with them, and that's been a lot of fun. And uh, so just lots of fun stuff. Oh, I should get hooked up with those guys. 
well, I'd love to introduce you to him. <laughs> that I think would be I fantastic. Will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Goodness. Yeah. I keep thinking it would be really cool to design some indoor ag equipment because I've seen some things that uh, I would like to see done better that nobody is really thinking in that direction again because they're they're just thinking grow out and they're not thinking post harvest and how do I deal with harvest and everything. But at the yeah. same time, I've just seen way too much. <laughs> well, you know, that could be a whole other uh, podcast, Sarah, about sustainable uh, growing, especially when you talk about uh, byproducts or biomass. Yeah. You know, and I, I've told you this before, I think, is that when we cut our wheatgrass for Pepsi, we sent them the blades, we bagged yeah. them up, and we boxed them up, and then we, we sent them the blades. But we had the root mass, the substrate, and the you know, the bottom part of the, the wheatgrass yeah. that was left over yeah. to, to the tune of like one and a half to three tons a week yeah. of just biomass. So ultimately that was a cost because yeah. we had to take it to a landfill. We first started composting it through a composting company, but that cost about a hundred dollars a ton. Hmm. And so that really? was not cost effective. Really? And then we, yep, we brought it to a, um, a landfill, which is about $55 a ton, mm-hmm. which is still a cost, but it's better, although yeah. it's not good because it's actually a really good product that you could probably feed to livestock. You feed uh, that to cows, livestock. yeah. You could 100% feed that to cows. Heck yeah, it's like fodder. Yeah. It's just like fodder. That's weird that the compost people are charging you 100 bucks a ton. Like, they should be selling that when they're done. Oh, they probably were turning around and selling it after they composted. I don't know yeah. whatever they were doing it, but that's disappointing. We we should have that discussion with respect to how to be sustainable because I, I was never able to solve that sustainability equation with the biomass, which was terrible because at three tons a week, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff, huh? So anyway, for future discussion. <laughs> yeah, we'll lock that down. Well, cool. Okay. Good talking to you. Um, Thank you so much for your time. You're so and, welcome. Thank you. I'm honored. It was my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to hearing the final product. Well, here it is, Jim. That was a great interview. I certainly learned some things. And as always, a lot of people stuff to think about mixed in with all that technical and financial info. Also, a quick note on a mouth typo. GMPs in food safety is not good management practices. It's good manufacturing practices. And someday we might talk about why that matters. But that closes it out for today. Thanks so much to Jim Pantaleo for taking time out to talk, and thanks to you for listening. Next week, we'll talk about sustainable food, how it's really kind of expensive and not very accessible, and why that's a problem. Thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor. Catch you next time. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space, and to Lauren Harris for audio production. 